Our gospel reading today is out of Luke chapter 1, finishing the chapter here, verse 57 to 80. Let us hear the gospel. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard, it, heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, today is the fourth Sunday in Advent by my count. As you know, we've been talking about what it means to anticipate biblically, uh, or to use fewer syllables, what it means to wait well. Uh, And as we've made our way through this rather lengthy first chapter of Luke, we've picked up a few ideas about what waiting well should look like. Now, I don't know about you, I I think everybody hates waiting. I know I do. Uh, That's why I purposely take a longer way home if I can avoid even minimal traffic on a given road. It doesn't actually save time, but it actually, all it does is really saves me from the sensation of waiting, right? Um, But we, we all have to learn the art of waiting well, and there's nothing in life you will wait for that is more important than Jesus. And as Christians, we are all awaiting Jesus's second coming. Uh, We do believe he's coming back, but we have been discussing how you can learn a lot about waiting for his second coming by reading about his first coming. And and we've seen three things so far that kind of characterize waiting well, and I wish I'd been clever enough to do this earlier, but I'm not much of a planner in that way. Uh, But I think I'm going to retroactively do the stereotypical pastor thing and and reduce this to a nice alliterative list. Um, 
And this week it, it struck me that to wait well, we, we need to pray, prepare, and praise, right? Uh, we, we learn from Zechariah's, well, negative example how to pray. Uh, we learn from Mary's acceptance of Gabriel's greeting to be prepared to receive. And we saw in Mary's Christmas carol last week that we should be uh, uh, praising while we wait. Uh, but today we learn a fourth lesson about waiting well, which is proclaiming or preaching, or prophesying. There were lots of P words I could have filled this in with here, but that's what you get. And particularly, proclaiming the gospel to your neighbors and relatives. Uh, This being Christmas week, uh, how many of you will be spending time with lots of relatives and neighbors throughout the coming week? All right, okay, that's fine. How many of them are too nosy for their own good? You don't have to raise your hands. That's going to be a record. Jason, put that hand down. Um... If, if, if today's, if you, if you do have to spend time, sometimes this week, with annoying relatives and neighbors, today's passage has something to say to you, because Zechariah can relate. Uh, he's in the unfortunate position of entertaining all of the friends and all of the family and all of the neighbors, and he can't say a word. <laughs> and they are the nosy sort. But... They need the good news of the gospel, and that's what Zechariah kind of gives them. At the end of this chapter, ultimately, we're still waiting for Jesus to arrive, but Zechariah shows us today that you don't have to wait for Jesus to show up before proclaiming him. But before all that comes a discussion of baby names. Shakespeare, in his famous play, Romeo and Juliet, posed the question, what's in a name? Juliet, I believe, poses the question because Romeo has the wrong name in that instance. He's in the wrong family. But actually, uh, quite a bit goes into a name, as it turns out. And if you've ever read the play or watched the movie, you quickly discover there's enough in a name to lead to everybody dying at the end. But um, all I have to say is that names matter. uh, And names are funny things. Everyone has one, but none of us got to pick our own unless you're a celebrity, you know. Unless you're Prince, you're kind of stuck with whatever your parents gave you. Uh, And not everyone can go from being Francis Gum to being Judy Garland either. Boston Celtics player Ennis Cantor added freedom to his name a couple weeks ago when he became a U.S. citizen. That honestly kind of sounds cool. But usually it's once and done. And so because of that, people agonize over names. Uh, We name our kids very carefully, and we even lose sleep over choosing the very best name. Uh, Sometimes the easiest thing is to reuse popular family names, and that's how we ended up in my extended family. If we include both sides, George's and mine, we have no less than eight Josephs floating around. Ridiculous, I know. Uh, Georgia and I had six chances to pick the perfect name, and we blew it every time. Um, Just kidding, guys. Just kidding. We, for instance, now we, we agonized over, like, Jacob's name, right? My first son. We had lots of ideas for good, unique names, and somehow we settled on the most common boy name for the last 10 years of running leading up to his birth. So, so much for being unique. We did have our reasons. It's a good name. And and honestly, boys are not really rewarded for having super unique names anyway. Um, We certainly avoided uh, repeating that dilemma when when Jemmy was born, uh, her full name being Jemima, I think excluding Aunt Jemima, Jemmy is possibly the only actual Jemima in America. (laughs) The only one I've met anyway. 
And it's a funny story, which wasn't very funny at the time, because when Jemmy was born, Georgia had settled on that name. I was not quite so settled. And this was a point of debate and contention between us for several months. Now, Jemmy was born at home, uh, uh, but we ended up in the hospital, which for the record was Temple University Hospital. I don't recommend this experience at all. It, it was kind of traumatic. We arrived by ambulance, and uh, Georgia was carted into the ER carrying the baby. And the nurse, I think, was trying to calm her down, says, oh, what's the baby's name, sweetheart? And Georgia looks straight at me, not at the nurse asking the question. She looks at me, tears in her eyes, and says, her name is Jemmy. <laughs> now, how was I supposed to contend with that? <laughs> I don't argue with Georgia when she's crying. She only does it twice a year, so I have to kind of just do what I'm told. Any which way, I've really come around on Jemmy's name. It's actually one of my favorites now. But all this stress and drama over picking the perfect name is nothing new. Uh, these things have always been fretted over, and, and that's where our story starts today. It's a long passage, and, and such a big chunk of it is Zechariah's prophecy, his, his proclamation, but Luke can't just launch into the prophecy without giving us some background, because Zechariah was still mute when we last left him, right? So it's hard to proclaim without a voice. So Luke wants to explain how that happened. And first of all, simply stated, a, a baby was born, right? Uh, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, this is more than just a generic statement that God has been merciful in, in giving her a son. Uh, there's also the fact that safe childbirth was not taken for granted in those days. They didn't have emergency rooms or modern medicine. And even today, when we have greatly reduced the infant mortality rate generally, but it's still true that pregnancies tend to become more complicated the older you get. So... While Elizabeth getting pregnant was in and of itself kind of a miracle, right? Having a healthy birth is nearly as miraculous. So the entire village and region rejoices that God has been merciful. And Elizabeth and Zechariah not only conceived, God's brought it to fruition. They have a healthy baby. And just as Gabriel said way back in verse 14, many are rejoicing at this birth. Now, they probably don't know the whole backstory because Zechariah hasn't been able to tell it, has he? But they do know that this is an extraordinary event and that God has a hand in it. Well, eight days later, the whole village, the whole neighborhood shows up for the circumcision. You kids remember what circumcision is? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prefer not to think about it. It's okay. I know. This is kind of weird, I know, but this is what passes for a family party in Jewish culture. Uh... It's surgery and a potluck wrapped up into one. <laughs> now, you did get like that little eight-day waiting period, which is kind of nice. I like that model. Eight days is a good minimal time frame to clean the house and prepare for company after a birth. I did mention we, we've had, we had three of our kids at home. And boy, did some relatives have opinions about that. But uh, w one of the nice things about that method is the privacy uh, there's no constant flurry of nurses and lactation consultants and social workers. It's a, it was just generally peaceful. It's very nice. So it caused me no end of heartburn when Jacob was born at home and I came downstairs to find George's entire family waiting in the living room for us, which kind of ruined the mood. So I read this and think, like, an eight-day respite, that would be a nice idea, you know? 
But in Jewish culture, at this time, the eighth day was very significant. This was the day you would circumcise a boy. Uh, and that seems like a weird thing, again, to, to make a party out of. But if you take God's covenant seriously, this is a time of rejoicing. And at this point in history, it was also the day the, ba- the baby's name became official. That wasn't true through all of Jewish history. It seems like something they kind of borrowed from Greek culture. But it fits well with the circumcision schedule. So the day a baby boy was marked as belonging to God was also the day he publicly received a name. And that gave you eight, dies, eight days to decide whether or not this baby looked more like a Harry or a Stanley or whatever. And you could make your final adjustments. And then you declare your name in front of all the friends and family. And that's kind of how we do baptisms here. Uh, We always try to make comments on the child's name because names are significant. And that's what happened here. Except that it sparked an immediate debate. It says, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. We have a lot of parents here. Um, how many of you parents ever had the experience of being told that you're doing it wrong? <laughs> Sometimes it, it seems like God has blessed us on, on every side with experts whose entire calling in life is to correct us on the way that we're you know, currently on. And where would we be without the wealth of wisdom around us, right? Uh, I remember once receiving a spontaneous lecture in a thrift store because the infant, Alyssa, in the car seat that I'm carrying around, was crying. And what a godsend. This woman swooped in to the other room here in the thrift store just to let us know that if the baby is crying, she probably wants something. I had never thought of that. (laughs) So naturally, I thanked her profusely for this unsolicited insight. Not every stranger is so insightful. It's much more common for the unsolicited advice, I think, to come from family and friends, and that's what happens here in this story. All the relatives and neighbors file into the house for the circumcision, and again, kind of weird, but not so in Jewish circles. Circumcision's not a pleasant business. Let's just be upfront about that. But food makes anything a party, right? For instance, we've been bribing our kids to sit nicely for shots for years by uh, promising them donuts, but that's essentially how this kind of thing worked. You have this unpleasant snip, a screaming baby, and then you break out the wine and the hors d'oeuvres. That's what happens. It's basically a Christmas party plus bloodshed, right? So anyway, they get to the actual cutting, and this could have been done by the neighborhood priest. Maybe Zechariah himself did it. He was qualified. But this is followed immediately by a dispute over the name because the name Elizabeth announces is unexpected. And I love how it's worded here. They don't ask what's his name. It just says they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Why ask when you can make assumptions? Now, in fairness, the assumption's not crazy. Uh, it's just more the brazenness of not accepting Elizabeth's word on the matter. It's not even that John is a weird name. It's a good name. It means God has been gracious. It was actually quite popular among Jews at this point in history, largely because John Hyrcanus had been a general and high priest in the Maccabean era, and since then it had kind of skyrocketed. It was a very common name. On the other hand, Zechariah is not such a bad name either, is it? I personally never wanted a junior myself, 
because it can feel self-aggrandizing, and I also didn't want to spend my days yelling my own name. Um, <laughs> but still, Zechariah is a worthy name. It means the Lord is remembered, and actually that would be a perfectly fitting name in this case, you would think. And yet, Gabriel had specified that this baby would be called John. Why did he do that? Why John? Scripture doesn't say. And I kind of suspect it was for the very purpose of creating this scene. God's just sort of forcing Zechariah to proclaim his word, even though it seems like an inconsequential thing, and even though it all seems arbitrary. The neighbors and relatives are intent on using Zechariah's name, not only because they feel like propriety demands it, but also for two other reasons. One is out of sympathy for Zechariah's disability, which they probably assume is permanent. And the other is because at his age, this is his one chance at a legacy. He's not going to get a second whack at this. If he wants his name to live on, now's your chance. And Elizabeth insists, no, the baby's name is John. They're like, well, I don't know if they've been fighting or what's going on. So they tell her, well, there's no one else in the family with that name, as Elizabeth would be unaware of that fact. Everyone loves nosy know-it-all relatives. If you learn nothing else from this passage as you enter Christmas week, don't be that kind of relative who has to have an opinion on everything. But... Uh, the relatives in this story are particularly insistent, and then they drag poor Zechariah into the middle of this thing. You could just picture him sitting quietly in the corner, trying to be left alone throughout this party, but then they come and grab him. So they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. By the by, I'd like to observe that they made signs to Zechariah. Mike Conksix just mentioned to me that there is a divided opinion among commentators on whether or not uh, uh, Zechariah was actually mute or mute and deaf. I'm thinking there's only three possibilities. One is that along with being mute, Zechariah has become deaf over the last nine months, either actually deaf or deaf by choice. Maybe he's learning to tune out Elizabeth's friends. I don't know. Or these people are just as ignorant as I am and assuming that being mute means that he must necessarily also be deaf. Or Georgia was wrong and I was right and he was deaf from the get-go. I'll let you draw your own conclusion. She's not here to defend herself. Actually, we've been doing our own version of an Advent pageant at home. Uh, uh, Georgia has had a sore throat most of the week and has therefore been virtually mute. Uh, she told me it makes it really hard to yell at the kids and make the house function, those two things being basically one and the same. But while Georgia has been experiencing the helplessness of Zechariah for several days, one thing she's been spared is dozens of relatives and neighbors pestering her all week, telling her how bad her parenting decisions are. She has me for that. That's enough. Um, but in this passage, Zechariah steps in and confirms, much to everybody's chagrin, what, what Elizabeth has been saying and nothing makes people wonder quite like seeing a married couple agree on something. We are told that the entire party wondered when Zechariah took a writing tablet and confirmed exactly what Elizabeth had been saying. His name is John. He might as well have written, Elizabeth is right. She could have framed it and hung it. And the response is wonder. 
And it's funny because wonder is one of those Christmassy words that we use even in the secular culture. We all try to instill a sense of wonder in our children at Christmas time. That's why we take them to see light shows and various Christmas productions. And yet the source of wonder in this story is over Zechariah's very simple statement that his name is John. And what's stunning about it, and I think what creates the wonder, is the fact that Zechariah is not concerned with his own legacy. That shocks people, because why else would you want children? Children are a heritage from the Lord, yes, but they're from the Lord to us, we kind of figure, right? But this simple statement from Zechariah is saying that this son is not a gift to him. God didn't do this miraculous thing just so he could slap his name on it and claim ownership. This child is not my possession. He's a sign of God's faithfulness. So Zechariah has learned his lesson. He's not going to doubt God's word, and he is obedient and names him John. And it doesn't really matter why God picked that name. The point is that to be faithful and proclaim God's word, he had to do this thing. He had to fulfill the spoken word from the angel Gabriel. And for Zechariah, he starts proclaiming before he can even speak. When all he can use to proclaim God's faithfulness is a tablet, he makes it work. Pastor Green uh, has often been on my case for my lack of technological sophistication, and I'm sure he would appreciate me and my flip phone carrying self that uh, I can notice that even Zechariah used a tablet. (laughs) Point taken, Reverend. Anyway, that's when the crazy stuff really starts happening in verse 64. It says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the relatives and neighbors wondered at the naming of John, but the response to Zechariah regaining his speech was fear. When God's people are faithful, it inspires wonder, but when God himself acts, people are afraid. It doesn't matter that his work is good or beautiful. People are afraid of it because they can't understand it or control it. But now that Zechariah has his voice back, how's he going to use it? He doesn't yell at the relatives, tempting as that might have been. He doesn't say anything to his wife. He doesn't start ooing and eyeing over the baby. No, he starts by praising God, and eventually he launches into this prophetic song, and that kind of freaks everyone out. The circumcision party just got really weird. And word spreads throughout the region, as gossip often does, that some weird and wild stuff is going on at Zechariah's house. And Luke says that everyone who heard this news laid it up in their hearts meaning they were anticipating. What is God going to do next? What's he going to do with this kid? That's the question on everyone's lips, actually, is what then will this child be? Now, I found that kind of a funny quote, only because we have this, you know, the popular Christmas hymn, What Child Is This? And, of course, the answer in that song is Jesus, but the closest thing we have to that actual question right here in Scripture is actually talking about John And it's a reasonable question. God is clearly doing something, and Zechariah is about to explain it a little bit cryptically with a prophetic proclamation. He will be proclaiming God's faithfulness and also declare an answer to the question of what child will this be. But he does things one at a time. I'm going to read again the first half of this prophetic hymn that we sometimes call the Benedictus. 
says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Stopping there for just a moment. Uh, So much like when Elizabeth saw Mary last week, Zechariah, we're told by Luke, is filled with the Holy Spirit, which means whatever follows was not something that he came up with of his own accord. Uh, This is not something he sat and worked out logically or by means of diligent study. This is a revelation from God himself. And the first half of the hymn focuses on God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to his word and faithfulness to his people. He is blessing God for his covenant faithfulness, the promises he has kept. And the entire hymn is a blend of Old Testament themes. We could spend all day looking up all the parallel passages But I think the highlights and the the, sort of the heart of the first half seems to be that God has been faithful to his promises specifically to Abraham and to David. And that he has done this by raising up a horn of salvation. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, a horn is frequently used as a symbol of strength. By contrast, in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, a horn is a magical tool for calling for help. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Father Christmas gives Susan a horn so she can call for help. Uh, In Fellowship of the Ring, Baramir uses the horn of Gondor to call for help. He died anyway, but still, he had one. uh, But biblically speaking, a horn is not a distress signal. It's a symbol of victory, strength, and power. And specifically, this phrase, horn of salvation, appears twice in the Old Testament, and both times it's attributed to David. And in both instances, David is referring to God himself. He says, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He uses basically the same line in 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalm 18. So when Zechariah uses this phrase, it seems to me to indicate that God is raising up himself as a horn of salvation. And that's when you start to wonder if the horn of salvation Zechariah is referring to might not be John. Zechariah is talking about Mary's baby. Because otherwise it would make very little sense to say that this horn was raised up in the house of David because Zechariah is a Levite. He's a descendant of Aaron. So Zechariah prefaces the entire hymn by blessing God not for his own son, but for giving his people a horn of salvation, which is presently about three months of gestation in Mary's womb all the way up in Nazareth in Galilee. So Zechariah is not focused on his own temporal blessings, but on the big picture. He doesn't praise God for giving him his voice back. He doesn't praise God for giving him a son. He's more excited about what God is doing to fulfill the bigger promises. And what were those promises? Well, what did God promise to Abraham? He made several promises to Abraham. Not all of them would seem to apply, but the one that makes the most sense is probably the first one that he makes to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So God promised Abraham that he would bless the whole world through him. What did God promise to David? You'll find many of those promises in the Davidic covenant passage in 2 Samuel 7, but I think the key promise is found at the end of that passage. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promised David an eternal kingdom. So God's made these two big promises to his people that they would be a blessing to the whole world, that the kingdom would be eternal. And I hate to break it to you, but both of these promises probably sounded pretty far-fetched at this point in history. Parts of these promises seem to have been fulfilled in the past in a sense. I mean, the Jews had been a blessing to certain people, maybe like the Egyptians for a time, and the Babylonians a little bit, and the Persians. Uh, David had been provided with many heirs and descendants, but it never really totally added up. Because none of David's descendants ever achieved even David's prominence, except maybe Solomon. But even Solomon in all his splendor was not the man his father was, and he died. And then the kingdom was divided, and the vast majority of kings after Solomon were terribly wicked people. And then the line of kings had ended centuries ago. And had the Jews really blessed the families of the earth at this point? I mean, they're not even much of a blessing to their neighbors. And at this point, they're just a cut-rate Roman province with no real influence. So the question remained open. How is God going to keep these promises? Would he keep these promises, or had he forgotten them? Or worse yet, had he given up on this stubborn, stiff-necked people? How is he going to establish David's throne forever? How is he going to bless not just every nation, but every family on the earth? There's obviously a lot of details that are still unclear, and Zechariah doesn't know how Jesus is going to reign and fulfill these things exactly. He doesn't know how he's going to bless the whole world. He doesn't know that this will come through his death and resurrection. That's probably not clear in his head, and it's all more than 30 years away. But that's the amazing thing, is that Zechariah sees these promises being fulfilled, at least beginning to be fulfilled, in these recent events. He's prophesying, preaching, proclaiming, that God is making these things happen right now. Amazingly, verses 68 and 69 are in the present tense, indicating that he's treating it almost like it's a fait accompli. Zechariah doesn't say God will visit and redeem his people, but that he already has. That's an amazing statement, considering this is still chapter 1. There's a lot that needs to happen between now and Jesus saying it is finished. Yet Zechariah claims by the Holy Spirit that God has, in essence, already accomplished the deed. The plan is in motion. He has started something. He's going to complete it. And it's so certain that I can speak of it in the present tense. The Messiah is not even born yet. The cousin only just got circumcised. And yet Zechariah proclaims that God is at work. Aslan is on the move, as C.S. Lewis would put it. God will bless the world. He will establish a permanent kingdom. And it starts now, today because my wife's young cousin is with child in Nazareth. So Zechariah uses his voice to point first to Jesus, the one who was coming, the one that would fulfill the promises. Now the family's going to think this is nuts. They'll say, yeah, but Zechariah, what about this child? What child is this? That's the question. He was getting to that. 76 to 79, he says, and you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So once Zechariah has made clear that the essence of the hope was in David's house, he declares what his boy's role will be in all of this. Zechariah is not predicting that John will be great in and of himself, but that his son will be great because of who he serves. John's job will be to preach salvation, forgiveness, mercy, and peace, and that kind of preaching will point people to his cousin Jesus. There's a lot we could do with this, and I can't possibly do justice to every facet of it today. But I didn't want to ignore the final verse. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He was in the wilderness. I have a question. In the wilderness starting when? Like how old was John when he decided to go off and live in the desert and eat bugs and become the first hippie? We don't know. But to all earthly appearances, the kid kind of went off the rails. And I don't think I'm saying too much when I say this is not what most parents want for their children. You don't aspire for your sons to be eccentric hermits who never marry and eat crickets. And I can't help but wonder if the same neighbors and relatives who were asking what this child would become and who heard Zechariah's prophecy began to think that maybe Zechariah's optimism was a little premature when this happened. But that's the point. Zechariah is not proclaiming a health and wealth gospel. And he is not saying that his son, John, would be powerful or respectable. He prophesied that his son would serve the Lord and point the way to salvation and peace. And he did exactly that. Even in the wilderness, he pointed the way to Jesus, just as his father did on the day he was named. And so, beloved, as Advent draws to a close, and Christmas is just days away, and we continue to wait for Jesus, I mainly want you to see that Zechariah did not waste his breath. He used his voice to proclaim God's faithfulness first, even ahead of blessing his own son. Now, I'm a talker. I can't imagine being silenced for nine months. I don't know what I'd do with myself. And if that did happen, I can't imagine using my first opportunity to speak after nine months to direct everyone's attention away from my newborn son to the boss he was going to work for one day. It's counterintuitive. It's weird. But Zechariah is okay with being weird in the eyes of his friends and neighbors because he knows what he's been waiting for. He wasn't just waiting for his son to be born. He wasn't just waiting to get his voice back. He was waiting for God to keep his promises to bless the world and establish a kingdom. He was waiting for Jesus, and he couldn't help but proclaim it. So as you hang out with your nosy relatives, how are you going to use your voice? Most of you still have your voice. George is probably the only one that doesn't have it right now, right? So are you going to use your voice to update them on your kids and how work is going and stuff with the house? That's all fine. But will you also proclaim the one who came and is coming again? Will you use your voice to proclaim Jesus? Will it feel awkward? Probably. But God's goal for you is not family approval or acceptability or conformity to social norms. Our job is to proclaim God's faithfulness to everyone by pointing to Jesus. And some will wonder, and some will fear, and some might even get angry, but some might 
just lay it up in their hearts, and some seeds might get planted. So that is my final Advent appeal to you this week. While we wait for Jesus to come back, let's pray, prepare, and praise, but let us also proclaim him with our tongues, using every opportunity to, to declare God's faithfulness out loud while we have a voice to our relatives, neighbors, and especially the nosy ones, because they all need to know the true wonder of Christmas, that God is at work in keeping his promises, and that the eternal king has come to bless the world. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story, Lord, this wild tale of Zechariah with his lost voice and regaining it and naming a son a a strange thing and, and how everybody gets worked up and is afraid suddenly and pondering these things in their hearts. Lord, it's, it's a wild thing. And Lord, we're thankful for this Advent season, the chance to, to ponder and reflect on what it means to wait, to anticipate biblically, Lord, to wait for your Son. Lord, even as we wait for Christmas Day, and, and Lord, a much bigger day is coming when he will return. Lord, help us to wait well. Help us to learn these lessons from Zechariah, from Mary, from Elizabeth. Lord, to look with eyes of faith, not with what our eyes, our earthly eyes can see. To look forward, to anticipate, to be excited, and to share that excitement with others. Help us to do that this week and going forward. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.